Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Maria Corpus, activist and host of Nightcaps. Omaha feels like a love-hate relationship, that you love it and the things that make it flourish are the people on the ground, but you hate it because the people who have the money and the power aren't listening to you or your friends. And man, if it takes nine generations for this place to get better, (laughs) I'm like, you know, what good can I do? But I'm still here. We talk about her story, her theory of communication, her vision for what the future of the city and the country might look like. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Maria Corpus, a local activist, journalist, and host of the live late-night talk show Nightcaps at Outer Spaces. Here is our conversation. Well, Maria, first of all, thanks for being on the show. This is exciting to talk to you. I feel like you are one of the important people in Omaha who's also a cool person. That Venn diagram doesn't always uh, intersect that much. So. Oh, thank you. That's like, a big compliment. Well, yeah, and, you know, Nightcaps is one of those cool things where just, you know, as a, as a comparison, there's a different energy someone like you brings to that than, like, Pete Ricketts starting a podcast. So Has he done that? He did start a podcast, yeah. Oh, about beef passports? <laughs> no, it was, it was a year or two ago, and I listened to an episode or two because I was curious. And uh, what my recollection of it is something along the lines of he had Deb Fisher on, and it was sort of like, boy, Deb Fisher, we sure agree on a lot, don't we? Let's just switch spots. Yeah, <laughs> and I listened for like a five minutes or so and thought, all right, I, I think I get it. So you, on the other hand, have a cool live show, and it's sort of the late-night format. And I wanted to talk just sort of about that in general. What drew you to that as a format, as your way of sort of communicating yourself and exploring issues? Yeah, um, there was a lot of things that went into that. At the time, Dewan Hayes and I were starting up Noise, and we were sitting in at bad, what is now Bad Seat. It used to be Mug Life. And just going through, getting ready for the primaries when Kara Eastman first ran against Don Bacon. And I was trying to understand why people my age, plus minus 10 years, I just turned 26, so I was a few years back then, but how we are the most diverse, most liberal, but we're the least likely to vote. And I had read that fact, and it like made me so angry. And I was like, why is that? And why don't we care? Then I was mad at our education system because I felt like it had failed us in the act of civility and how do you be a participatory person in the United States or in Omaha, Nebraska. And I felt like it was really left out of our education of why we have skin in the game and why voting for the learning councils all the way up to the president is so important. And as I was reading into that, you know, I just brainstormed, what do my friends care about? And what are my friends showing up to? And what are they going to invest their money in? Because... Probably back then, none of them had even given to a political candidate at any point in their time. But they'll buy a $30 ticket to a concert, and then they'll buy a $30 t-shirt, and there's $60 that you spent in one night, but it's for an experience. 
I attended Creighton, and I was a journalist student there, and I got to learn. I was a public relations major, but I, I tell the story quite often, if you've ever listened to me speak, is I had the privilege of going down to Nogales, Mexico, which is a border city. And we filmed a short documentary down there about the migrant experience and talked to folks who had just recently been deported. And that was the summer before Trump was elected. Just all of that and how do I want to tell stories and how do I want to bring together community? Because as we've seen since the start of MySpace or the start of Internet messaging is that you can post on Reddit or you can post on Facebook a controversial opinion and then shut your computer and walk away and not have to stay with these tough conversations. That was one reason why I wanted to start something like this. And the other is that I was getting frustrated having conversations with my conservative family members. And how do I not get so angry at them? And how do I educate them and bring them into a space where they're not going to feel made to feel stupid Mm -hmm. or like they don't know something or look down upon? And so I really tried to make it be an accessible environment for people to come learn things or to share what they already know in a space that also is focused on including voices that aren't normally included in panels around town or, you know, at Creighton panels or I would attend events and I was like, you guys are all just repeating what the other person is saying. It's just an echo chamber. I really try to intentionally choose people who may not ever sit in a room together. Uh, There's always an artist involved, whether their medium is visual arts, whether they're dancers, musicians, and then they're part of the conversation and then they get to present their work to the audience to kind of close out the show. So if we're talking about things like the rights of our body and um, women's rights like that, working through things that could be traumatic or that bring up like icky feelings. And so getting to celebrate at the end through artwork to me was really important so that you could at least like take a deep breath together and enjoy something beautiful or that sparks different emotions so, yeah. Well, that that's so ambitious. I mean, so many people, whether, I mean, so it sounds like part of the root of it was how do you have a productive conversation rather than like fighting with people? And so, I mean, you, your answer to it is this big celebration of art, this sort of celebration of people, this collaboration of cultures talking to each other. So there's a lot to that. And I, I kind of want to go back to, I mean, you studied journalism, but this feels beyond the scope of what they probably prepare you for in journalism school, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess before we even, before we get to Nightcaps to take a step back further, I mean, did you always have ambitions to do some kind of big multimedia type show or was like a variety show or was, I mean, was there a point where you wanted to be more of a straight-laced journalist? No, I don't know. No, I think what sparked my passion for storytelling is I was hired by a startup app company called MyGUI when I was 17 years old. I don't even know if they're still around. Uh, Like, it was basically Yelp, but only for cool And so uh, I was a nursing major and because I just wanted to help people and connect to people. And then I realized that nursing wasn't really my passion, but telling stories with words and language was... So when I got into journalism, I really had no idea what exactly I wanted to do with it. And now I just kind of do a whole mixture of things. Nightcaps is really my side passion project. It's kind of fallen to the wayside, not fallen to the wayside this past year, but, you know, people are like, why haven't you made it into a podcast yet? And I tried to do, we did a few virtuals and it was really great, but I was going negative with my bank account, paying out artists, because I really believe in paying artists. And usually there's a recommended donation at the door of Outer Spaces. And so we're able to pay out through that. But without that, 
I still believed in paying out. So that was one reason. And a big part of Nightcaps is connecting. And that's my favorite part of it is that I get to watch people meet each other and then watch them work on projects together and watch them chit-chat and push the conversation about what people in Omaha are talking about forward outside of Nightcaps. But watching relationships start and flourish in that space is so important to me because really it's not just a conversation with guests, it's a conversation with the audience that attends as well. You know, when you're sitting in class and you have a teacher like, let's just go with calculus and all of a sudden it's at the end of the class and she's the teacher's like, what questions do you have? And you're like, I had a question a few chapters back and now I'm completely lost. And so I like to present that to the audience right away of being like, if ever there's a question or a comment where you're like, hey, wait, I don't actually know what a crop covering is, then we can stop and ask about it. Because again, they always say, if you have a question, odds are somebody else does, but let's not wait till the end. Mm -hmm. We can do that, but I like to really bring in the audience's thoughts and questions throughout the entire conversation. So the live audience is essential to the whole project. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, and so, I mean, what is it about conversations? Because I, I kind of feel this way too, that there's a big difference. Like, I don't have a bunch of questions right now. I just have a bunch of ideas, basically. But what, what is it about a, a actual conversation that you can do more with? Or why that as opposed to, like, the straight sort of interview? The straight sort of interview puts people in boxes. And I hate being put in boxes. You know, just being like you ask a question and you expect a certain type of answer where I usually just prioritize a few questions but then a lot, a lot of the other questions come from something another person said, and it creates intentional listening from an interviewer. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a podcast or radio person, you know when the interviewer is just asking questions yeah. and isn't intentionally listening to the person who's responding. And so I think in a conversation format, it allows for an ebb and flow of conversation that I get taken to places that I had never even considered that I want to like dig into. Right. And yeah. so I really love the open-endedness of the more conversation style. And going back to how it started, I was watching, you know, like Samantha Bee and John Oliver and Trevor Noah. And I loved the way their style of telling stories, but I also wished that they would do more interviewing of like celebrities on more influential topics rather mm-hmm. than just promoting their next book or movie. I was like, let's, what do they think about this though? And other yeah. problems that you talked about earlier in the show. Did you ever do like it? I'm I'm nerdy about interviews, and I watch like Dick Cavett, old Dick Cavett episodes where they'd have people just come on and have these really inflammatory types of conversations about things. And uh, you know, Dick Cavett just kind of was there. Sometimes he would actually have the conversation itself. Sometimes he'd sort of just bring in like James Baldwin and somebody else and just let them go at each other. And to me, it's so engaging and interesting. I mean, do you have influences in the way that you try to have those conversations? Hmm. I love on being with uh, Tippett. She's wonderful. And I think that she really has intentional conversations with people. I love the way that she holistically looks at problems. So I definitely look to her, but who else? So maybe you're just forging your own path. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to be copying anybody. But, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, there's something fun about that, but there's also like, I don't know, in my, in my experience, because I've been doing stuff like this too, uh, sometimes you're not always sure, like, okay, my instincts, are they, are they going to bring out the most exciting or interesting or insightful element of what this person has to offer? And it's, it is something you kind of learn over time. But I mean, was your approach sort of just, I'm going to jump in and figure it out as I go? Yeah, it, it was. And it's been really wonderful to talk to my friends who have been with me from the start and to how it has blossomed over the last few years because they're like, you've really grown.
own and you've really honed in on asking more intentional questions and prioritizing themes and creating a space where the audience feels like they can talk and have the courage to do so uh, and ask questions. Uh, it's because it's funny, like, it doesn't matter how old you get, que- asking questions in front of us, an audience, this can still be scary to some folks. And so just really working on creating charisma also between panelists has been really interesting and fun too because a lot of because I'm so intentional of bringing people from different spaces to talk about the same thing oftentimes they've never even met each other Mm -hmm. and so it's really beautiful to watch that relationship kind of flourish in this space as well well so as far as your goals then, I mean, when you chose to study journalism, it sounds like you weren't sure exactly what to do with that. I mean, it's, journalism itself is in kind of this weird position now where, where everyone can carve out kind of their own world that they want to live in. And it's difficult. Like, is, is there going to be any money in any of the journalism? So, I mean, when you made that choice, I guess, did you were you worried about the future? And are you still worried about what's going to happen? What does journalism look like in 10 years or so? I feel like that's such a big question because if we're asking me specifically about what what does nightcaps and the journalistic area of that look versus where does journalism look, there's two different conversations to me. Maybe let's go broad and then we'll we'll bring it back. Okay, so yeah, journalism. You know, um, Paul B. Allen and Dewan Hayes are doing amazing work right now uh, with First Sky Omaha Noise. Uh, Noise Omaha and the fact that they are giving citizens and people on the ground the power and the tools that they need to start telling stories from those lenses, especially with, you know, the Omaha World Herald has two different fonts on one page these days and the it's not so much local. And so when we're talking about stories within our community, giving community members the tools that they need to be the ones telling those stories. So it's not somebody who has never been to your neighborhood and who's only asking questions because, you know, there was a shooting a few blocks away. You want somebody who's been on the streets and telling it through their lens. And so that's my ideal hopeful uh, direction that journalism will start going is giving people the tools they need. I think funding will be a big, big thing to tackle going forward because as we're seeing so many different um, outlets and different kinds of media are just being scrounged together into one they're they're just like really mainstreaming it and so I don't know I I think it'll be really creative to think about ways of which you can get community funding Um, but funding is a tricky thing especially eh, I'll stop and it's scary (laughs) right because it's like I don't know if there's going to be enough like there there might even you could find a passionate group of people who love your show they still might not have enough spending capital to give you much you know yeah exactly and and you even see that in politics too of community ran grassroots politics um and people who are running have a harder time getting money because the people who rally around them are the people who don't normally have extra cash to spend who are working two jobs who don't have health insurance and so I've seen that recently in campaigns of grass that are totally ran grassroots style is that then they're set back just because they don't have the funding from the friends and family circle that those bigger circles of funders won't even give you money or won't even look at you if you don't have a proven record with your friends and family. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Maria Corpus, local activist, journalist and host of Nightcaps, a live late night talk show at Outer Spaces. So as far as grassroots in terms of politics, I mean, your show, beyond just being entertaining, obviously it does have 
uh, some element of activism to it. So let's talk about that. I mean, how did how did your worldview shape? What were some of the things that made you want to pursue uh, the kind of activism that you do? Uh, the kind of activism that I do is so complex. <laughs> People are like, what, can you send me a bio? And I'm like, I don't know how to put all this into one paragraph. <laughs> um, but I, it just kind of goes back to that documentary trip that I went on. Mm-hmm. And I, so I'm an Asian American, My I'm half Filipino. And growing up, uh, somebody re- just recently asked me, you know, what are ways in which you faced racism here in Omaha? And I'm, I responded like, it's really funny because I got all the Asian racist, racist jokes of, you know, do you eat dog or like pulling the eyes out and you, are you adopted is like a kind of a microaggression. But I also got race uh, people who thought that I was Mexican or people who thought that I was Native American and racist comments towards that. And so when I was at the border, for me, my name is Maria Corpus, like that sounds Spanish because of colonialism, which we can unpack probably on a whole nother show. So I got that kind of racism. So going down at the border and seeing people from Guatemala and Honduras, it felt like my brothers and sisters. It felt like my family was, didn't, wasn't getting access to the same resources that I was just because I came from a different colonized country that so happens to have a better, quote unquote, better for who, relationship with the United States. Mm-hmm. And so coming back from that, I realized that I could no longer live without trying to learn more about the social justice issues, without feeling bad. And so I, Dawn and I were starting noise. I was trying to start nightcaps. And because social justice was so new to me and fighting for this and advocating for different things was so new to me that I wanted to use nightcaps as a way to educate myself mm-hmm. and to educate folks who were in my position to feel empowered to do something. And this last election cycle, we had we had over 100 volunteers for Jasmine Harris's campaign. And I was in charge of all of them. <laughs> it was so much fun, but so many people were first time volunteers. I would say like 85%, which was awesome. And so in our trainings, I would say, you know, like it's your first time and we can't expect you to know everything. We can't expect you to know every single response to policy that Jasmine has. I don't even know that and I am on the payroll. And so, you know, the best thing to do is to just, if somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, just being like, hey, I don't know that answer. Let's go find out together. Can I get your contact information? I'll call you back later. I had one guy ask me like, what, are you, what is this candidate's position on the bridge that's going to go up over here? And I'm like, I don't even know what bridge you're talking about. <laughs> Let me call him. So I called the campaign manager. He sent me to somebody who's working on whatever it was in the legislature, called that guy, and then brought it back to this voter. And we had like a more conversation about something that we both learned. And so I think it's important in order for advocacy and activism to be accessible, it needs to be open and we need to address people who are gatekeeping this space so that people do feel included and empowered to go out and go to a protest, write postcards. There's so many different ways for people to get involved, but I think a lot of people shy away from getting involved because they're scared they don't know everything or, you know, politics is scary and it is scary. <laughs> well, I think what you're talking about, I mean, that makes sense that the love of a conversation in general is sort of going on a journey with somebody as opposed to like a strict, strict interview. But uh, I, I want to talk about this idea of gatekeeping because I think it is essential uh, and it's really a political hotspot right now, right? Because 
you're talking about the history of colonization, of imperialism, right? And sort of for you to go on that journey, uh, now we have that happening sort of simultaneously with this fight over, uh, you know, I almost I hesitate to even say there's a fight over critical race theory. The fight over the three words, critical race theory, at the very least. Um, the fight over how should America be taught or explored among people trying to learn about the history. Uh, and so, I mean, how did that journey work for you, I guess, in terms of trying to uh, connect with your family history and what that means in kind of a broader sense? Oh, man, this is such a big topic for me this past year. Um with everything that happened last year in, across the nation and specifically in Omaha, my grandmother is, she turns 94 on July 7th. Uh, she's been saying she's 94 since January 1st, but <laughs> that's all right. Um, and she's, I grew up with her and she was just another figure in my family. And she, you know, was living in the Philippines during World War II, but after the Filipino-American War. And just la- the other week, I was like, Lola, tell me more about what you're parents thought about the Filipino-American War. And she responded, what war? And I was like, the war between the Philippines and the Americas that like ended 25 years before you were born. And she's like, well, maybe I already forgot about learning about that. Maybe she forgot about it, but also she learned from U.S. history textbooks. They, the U.S. prepped Filipino workers to be viable to come to the United States. And then there was... You know, they handpicked Filipinos who had doctorate degrees, who had, who were nurses, and bred us to be workers here in the United States. And this past year, you know, you Filipino nurses were the ones who died at the highest rate because of COVID. And digging into that history and after she said that, and it was the first time this past year that I was like, Lola, when did you learn about, when did you experience racism? And she remind she recalled two different stories, and I was just, I'm a crier, so of course I was crying. And she'll even tell me, you know, like, why are you so sensitive? <laughs> like, because, like that's such a bad thing. Yeah, you know? it's a bad thing. But then I, you know, I have more grace for her in that aspect because she lived, she had to leave her home for years because of the bombing and the war that was happening in the Philippines when she was 12 to 15 years old. She lost her mother right at the end of that because as they were traveling back to their home. Her mother had an asthma attack, but the hospitals weren't open yet. And so she lost her mother at a young age. And when I think about all that trauma and that ancestral trauma and the response, emotional response that must have come with that, I'm like, well, yeah, no wonder you don't know how to cry because it was just survival mode. And I felt empowered because I was like, you know what? That response to trauma and emotional response is going to end with me. And that's okay that I'm sensitive and that's okay that I'm empathic and that I'm, I cry. I, I was thinking the other day, <laughs> I've hosted a lot of panels this year and a lot of them are like talking about trauma and because of racism or whatever else. And I'm like, I wonder how many people have seen me cry virtually <laughs> this year. <laughs> it's got to be dozens. So, But I mean, as far as your point, though, that's a good thing, right? Because you, you would yeah. want people to embrace something similar, right? Because mm-hmm. there's probably other people who feel similarly, similarly about their generational trauma and how to react to it, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, just this past year, I've been learning, I've been trying to study books about the Philippines and what our culture was like pre-colonialization and... They've been colonized by a lot of people. And so we're really just kind of this like mix of like Chinese and Spanish and American and 
before that, it was like the Native Americans here of there's so many different tribes, so many different languages. And so getting back to that, you know, I, I've been also studying decolonization and what that looks like. And I've realized that decolonization is not only unlearning the colonistic ways, but it's relearning your own culture. So decolonizing looks totally different for somebody like me versus somebody who in another country who's been decolonized because of the way that they have to relearn their culture because it's been taken away, because it's been hidden, because our ancestors didn't get to learn that history or our history wasn't allowed to be taught. Right. Well, that, that, I think that's fascinating about the American history books. And it, it kind of helps to, I think, clarify some of the issues about what does it look like to broaden history now? Because sort of in the argument against it, there's this idea that, no, nope, we got it right. It's done. And we're like, we're done figuring out history. It's all perfect. We're good to teach it now forever. Uh, and it, it, then that gets conflated with like to to have a nuanced or critical view of the country is to hate the country. And so let, maybe let's talk about what are, your, what are your feelings on that view? I mean, what is it? How is your idea of America? What what is what is it right now in the context of imperialism, colonization, and everything you're going through? You know, I just had this conversation with my good friend Elagia yesterday because her and I are hosting a, the Public Assembly, which is a new program over at the Bemis. They have a new exhibit right now called "All Together Amongst Many," and it's talking about empathy. And a lot of the artists in this exhibit are black, brown, queer, you know, people who exist on the fringe of society. And we talked about how beautiful it is that finally black and brown folks are getting to tell their history in a creative way through art, where historically it's been white artists in museums, white male artists in museums. And so I think it's a really beautiful time right now that we're getting to experiment with telling our stories from our lens and not having it told for us. And so it's really hard to convince other folks that we can keep doing better when we're telling them that the way that, because okay, white men wrote history. And so to tell a white man that, hey, we need to revamp history, that's coming for, they feel personally attacked for that. And so how do we create this conversation in a way that will be open and inviting to, to for everyone to have this conversation because in reality they're the gatekeepers of this whole critical race getting critical race theory in schools or even getting same sex sex education taught in schools i think is a really big one that i'm passionate about of like in schools you if you only learn the basics about sex education and you're a queer person how do you learn how to have safe sex uh, it's not really accessible in, in that sense. But it's such a complex issue that I hope that people can ha- keep fostering that conversation to find a way to bring other perspectives into the history books because that's what's crucial and essential right now. And all stories need to be told from the person who experienced them. Um, so it's not like, no. I'm always like, if a kid on the playground was bullying your son you wouldn't and you went to the school and they're like oh well that's just kind of like the way it is you wouldn't be like no okay yeah you're right that's just the way it is you would be like no my son is bullied can we listen to him and so for black and brown people to be like we've been bullied our ancestors have been bullied can you just listen to us can you hear our perspective on these stories uh i'm like if if anybody can relate to their kid getting bullied (laughs) 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think you get into problems, too, where a lot of the people, they don't always believe. I mean, they're, they're trying to signpost. They're trying to make, I don't know, they're, they're having a different conversation than the one that they say they're having a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, as, as far as the, the idea that, like, you know, you, you hate all society because you're critical of it, as like that juxtaposed with the idea that you are involved, you're an activist, you're working with people who uh, have causes that you believe in. Right. So, I mean, I think I think that there's there's kind of an inherent problem with this idea that only one side of the political spectrum can be critical and the other one can't uh, when also both. All right. I always I hate the idea that there's only two sides of things, too. I mean, yeah. it's stupid personally. But, you know, the, the what, what work you're doing seems to suggest that you do think there is a chance that things can improve. Right. That they that there is there's a there's a possibility of a better world. It varies. It varies yeah. every day. <laughs> you know, like yesterday I was so uplifted to ha- to be in this artful space and to share it with my friend Alaji and brainstorm what kind of conversations we want to have with people. And that made me feel really hopeful. But then there's other days or like the primary results or this past election cycle, I was just like ripping my hair out. Why don't people understand and why don't people participate? And this work that we've been doing, it feel it felt hopeless. And and, and so it goes back and forth and it can be like, yes, and I'm reading a book right now called My Grandmother's Hands, uh, which I totally recommend to everybody. But it talks about how we store trauma in our bodies, specifically black bodies, um, bodies in law enforcement and then white bodies and um, about epigenetics. And I was listening to um, the author Resma on a podcast. The interviewer asked him, like, do you think that you're going to see this change that you're looking for in your lifetime? And he was like, no, I won't. We won't see it for seven to nine generations. And I just about fell out of my chair. (laughs) I was like, no, what the hell? Like, we need this now. (laughs) But then it also allowed me to give myself grace because I'm just a go, go, go person. I'm a yes person. I'm like, let's do this now. I'll sign up to volunteer. Yes, because I want to see those these changes happening sooner than later. But what that statement also provided for me was like, it may not happen in your lifetime. So why don't you just rest for a day? Which was so powerful for me, which is like another decolonization <laughs> process of like, go, go, go. Like the Philippines used to have siestas, granted from the Spanish colonization. But that's something that I would like to hold on to from a colonized <laughs> standpoint of like, yeah, let me nap. Let me work four day weeks. Let me not work from 8 a.m. until 1, 1 a.m. That's not sustainable. And so that was powerful for me of being like, oh, damn, like. I can't remember if it was seven or nine, but it was one of those generations, and I'm like, geez. Still a lot. I mean, it's so many years. Not, not two or whatever. We're like, yeah, I might get there. Yeah, and then you look at like the Earth, and they're like, yeah, the Earth will be dead within the nine generations. I, I get the, yeah, the, so it's like, the ah. overwhelming element, but so okay, so relaxing is tough, right? And so, yeah. you're, are you able to do it? How do you how do you sort of unwind? Hmm. Hmm. Man, I am still learning how to do that, to be honest. Uh, I went and got a massage from my friend Nathan, and I came out of it, and my friend and I were joking about, I was like, you know, I always go 100 miles per hour, and I think I'm just going to go 30 miles per hour, but 100% effort. And I was just, like, talking, like, totally zoned out. (laughs) And then we were, like, reflecting on that. He's like, you're definitely not going 30 miles per hour right now, Maria. You're still going 100 miles per hour. I'm like, I've said no to two things in the last two weeks. Like, I feel like that's pretty good. So I'm still working on learning how to do that. But 
um, giving myself time to read. My company that I work for did just give us Fridays off now, and so Fridays are my day to work in the garden. I ripped up a whole sod side of my house, a lot of sod on the side of my house, and Taylor Keene, who is a good friend and has been a guest on Nightcaps, he did the Sacred Seed pop-up downtown, and he passed on Sacred Seeds to me. And so I planted the Three Sisters, um, which are corn, squash, and beans, and planted some sunflowers around them and, and just watching the corn grow. It's like a physical thing that I'm doing with my hands and the land that I own to decolonize it. And so it's been a way for me to take action on what I'm learning internally. Well, it's also a way for you to kind of do your whole life mission while ostensibly relaxing, right? Yeah. I'm like, pulling weeds is, is like really comforting to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, do you, do you have like, it sounds like what you read is related to all these things you're interested in. It sounds like, you know, the gardening has got sort of the goal. Not that there's anything wrong with that because these are, these are good things. And, you know, opening your mind is obviously a happy, that's a thing that helps you in general, right? But like, do you have, uh, are there like guilty pleasure hobbies too? Like you watch something on Netflix and it's, it's disconnected somehow? Uh, yeah, I actually just finished the first season of You on Netflix. It's um, the stalker show? Yeah, okay. with Dan from Gilmore Girls. And <laughs> um, that really messed me up. I couldn't watch more than one episode a night. I'd have to finish it off with like a New Girl episode. <laughs> but really, that's like it. And I, I'm really lucky to also just have a very, very tight-knit family. And I go home for dinner on Sundays. And I have three siblings. And now we're... For the next two or three weeks here, we're all going to be in town. And so that is my – we play Catan, and we write our name on the box of who wins. And I think I'm, like, right neck and neck with my brother Michael right now. <laughs> uh, but that's something. And just being in conversation with them uh, is kind of my break. But I, I need more guilty pleasures because literally the, my problem is that first word, guilt. I feel guilty if I'm not – for, like learning something, connecting people, having conversations, attending my friends' events, doing my day job, doing all the other jobs that I take on. So that's another thing that I'm definitely, definitely need to work on. <laughs> I'm talking today with Maria Corpus, local activist, journalist, and host of the live late night talk show Nightcaps at Outer Spaces. Let us know what you think by following Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can use the hashtag Riverside Chats, or we have a new thing we're trying out here, a new feature, a kind of letter to the editor, where you can call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. We'll continue my conversation with Maria Corpus after this break. Hello? Want to be a manchi boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Do, 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 do. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now. Yeah. 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 It sounds like ha ha bra. Check out 
Munchie Boys is on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstream's everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking today with Maria Corpuz, local activist, journalist, and host of the live late-night talk show Nightcaps at Outer Spaces. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, to, to go back to your overall sort of like oscillation between uh, feeling kind of optimistic about the future and feeling nihilistic, maybe, why stay in Omaha is a question that comes up for a lot of people oh in your situation. Oh, my gosh. You know, um, this this town, man. I was born and raised here, and my parents met at Creighton and started a life here because, you know, they say it's like one of the best places to raise a family, blah, blah. I don't know if that's still true, but I never left. And I think a big pull of that is because of my Lola. And every opportunity that I get to talk with her, and even though we disagree on some things, or just to make her laugh, brings me so much joy. And I think that that's one of the number one reasons why I have stayed in Omaha. And I purchased a home last fall, uh, which is funny because I had told all my friends that I would be moving to LA last year. Oh, so you've almost made it out. Oh, I was really close. I had a roommate and everything. And then the pandemic hit and I just kind of rethought things. And I flirted with the idea of running for office. And I was like, well, I was living with my parents because I was supposed to be gone for 25 weeks last year. I also tour with a few bands. And so it was like two days before we were supposed to go on the Ellen DeGeneres show. L.A. went into lockdown. Oh, man. And and now Ellen's canceled. So the year got canceled. Ellen got canceled. Whatever. Cancel culture, silly. But <laughs> it was kind of a bummer. Um, and so I came home and was just kind of, you know, rethinking, doing all this research and thinking about what my activism looks like. And 
watching people run for office and I was like, if, if they can do it, like I could do it. Oh, yeah. Watching the state legislature's live feed, I feel like, is a big ego boost when some, some unnamed people get up to talk. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, are your constituents listening to what you're saying right now? Um, so, in my, I was, so I was living with my parents because I'm like, it's stupid to pay rent when I'm not going to be gone for half the year. And then since I was at home for the majority of the year, my mom was like, all right, Maria, come December. Like, you're going to have to pay rent. And I'm like, I'm not paying rent to anybody. That's funny. So I was started house looking, looking for houses, and was on my way to my friend Pascal's house and saw a house for sale a few doors down. Luckily, before this entire market went crazy, I put a bid in, and I was lucky enough to get it. I was literally questioning today if I'm going to rent it out and move to L.A. again. <laughs> um, so I don't know. But Dewan and I were talking about this the other day. It's like Omaha feels like a love-hate relationship that you love it and the things that make it flourish are the people on the ground, but you hate it because the people who have the money and the power aren't listening to you or your friends. And man, if it takes nine generations for this place to get better, <laughs> I'm like, you know, what good can I do? But I'm still here. Yeah, Dewan's, uh I'm friends with him on Facebook and seeing just his, his sort of like soul-crushing posts sometimes about his relationship with the city. I almost just want to, just get out. Yeah. Get out. Just go somewhere else, Dewan. I know. I know. But he he calls it how it is. And I don't know, man. We just got to get people elected who will even listen to us and have the conversations that we're trying to have because a lot of the elected officials right now won't even have conversations. And I think that's what where I feel defeated. You know, it's like, why aren't you even open to having these conversations? Or flirting with our ideas and if we can come to like even push the needle a little bit that would be good <laughs> so would in your potential goal of running for office then would part of the idea be to bring what it is that draws you to conversation to elected some kind of elected position i was considering running for office and then i was so privileged to be a part of jasmine harris's campaign for mayor this last year and i was in charge of field and volunteer directing and it was the best experience and the most tiring, exhausted experience I've ever had. It just made me think like, mm, I know I have a role in pushing progress forward and I don't know if this is my role in pushing progress forward. Just with the hate that comes with it and like I said, I cry a lot and so I can already see all the white men in this town being like, she's too soft like they already bash on senator kavanaugh for that and i love senator kavanaugh uh and i would probably cry more than she does in which is a lot so i don't know right now those those plans are kind of put on hold um i'm just like you're still young you can do this in the future if, mm -hmm. if it feels like the right time so that's kind of on hold but if i do when and if i run that will definitely be part of it is i'm just like more people need to be having town halls. And uh, Senator Tony Vargas, he, you know, he even told me, uh, he's like, you know, I kind of copied your idea of nightcaps, but wanting to, to interview people since the pandemic live on Facebook. And so I was privileged to be on his show now uh, doing that. And, you know, just making sure people's voices, voices in the community are heard on your platform, I think is so important. And so I think that's what more elected officials should be doing is having those conversations, whether it's virtual town halls right now or in the future, like, 
hey, I'm going to be posted up at this coffee shop. Here's my open hours mm-hmm. um, or like what teachers do, you know, open office hours, uh, I think are really important. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Maria Corpus, local activist, journalist and host of the live late night talk show Nightcaps at Outer Spaces. So it sounds like you've also got kind of a maybe a, an element of showbiz with the moving to L.A., playing in bands, even Nightcaps as a potential show that could be spun out of that, right? Is, yeah. that, is that a dream as well? You know, okay, I'll, I'll rephrase. I don't play in bands. Oh, okay. um, I tell them that I'm the words of encourager. Okay. I'm, I'm your words of affirmation giver. But I also um, I sell merch, and I'm the merch manager, and I help tour manage for okay, uh, tennis. Um, which they were based out of Denver, and they moved to L.A., and so I'm like, dang it, you guys. Um, and then a band called Tuxedo, and they're based in L.A. and Seattle. So you, you don't play any instruments then? I don't. I okay. just, uh, you know, play on those heartstrings of people, trying to get them out <laughs> to vote. <laughs> well, what about what about uh, doing uh, your show, doing nightcaps in, like, a, a late-night TV show way? Is that an aspiration? Oh, yeah. I, like... When I talk about my dream job, I'm like, my dream job would be to, like, get Netflix or HBO. So if anyone's listening and has a connection, um, help me. I would love to do that. And I think it would be really cool. Like, I've just had this idea of a show that it's a traveling and you go to different cities and you feature community activists on the ground and what they're doing. Because, like, if Kansas City had a noise or, you know, if Minneapolis had an IB black girl and sharing the resources instead of people having to start from the beginning, because a lot of the problems that we have here in Omaha are problems you see all across the country. But uh, I would love to create an ecosystem of um, movers and shakers in featuring people like that so that you're like, oh, this guy, Dewan Hayes, you know, started this. I just keep using him as my reference, but you know, somebody from who may want to start that in Kansas City or wherever can go to their website and get in contact with them and be like, hey, would love to sit down with you. And just creating a space where we don't have to start so far behind and keep restarting and restarting and restarting. I think that's a really cool uh, aspiration. And Ted Sarandos, if for some reason you're listening to Omaha Public Radio, you know, <laughs> you know who to call. Help us. <laughs> okay, so as we're kind of winding down here, I know you had some things you wanted to plug. So what, what, what should we talk about here? Oh, um, so I kind of already plugged the All Together Amongst Many. If you have a second, go check out this exhibit and give yourself time because it's important to sit with this artwork because of the fact that it was created by such a diverse um, group of artists. Um, come check out our public assembly conversations that Elagia and I will be hosting. We're going to talk about things like cancel culture and prison reform and um, empathy and how empathy is courageous. And we had that whole conversation yesterday because um, I was like, you know, we talk about empathy, but look at the way these artists expose themselves and worked through whatever trauma and healing they needed to do in order to create this piece of artwork. And to me, that's like so courageous. And to like share that with others in a space is like, it's risk taking. And so that'll be one of the conversations we have. And so I'm excited for those. There's going to be three of them. And then um, I was part of NLC this past year, which is the New Leaders Council. I'm not I'm sure you've had some grads on on the show. Um, who have been part of NLC, but they are working across the nation to develop cohorts of leaders in local areas to create social movements and changes in nonprofits and businesses and 
Um, in my cohort, we have people who will be running for office. We have people starting nonprofits, fighting for um, queer folks. And so it's a really diverse, um, diverse group of people. But I felt you so you create a capstone and that can be whether it's like a business plan, running political campaign plan, nonprofit, um, just that pushes the progressive values forward. And it got to, like, it started in January. We presented in June. And it got to, like, April, May. And I still had no idea. My thought was, like, okay, how can I combine my work of, like, decolonizing with running political campaigns? And is that even possible when the system we're in is so colonized and, like, having just, like, existential dread? (laughs) (laughs) And so – and then the shootings happened in Atlanta and – I just like drove home crying from work and the grief and the loss of words and see, I'm like getting teary right now, but like the lot, I didn't have a sense of community to go to. I had my family and they only really talk about this hard stuff when I bring it up. I'm kind of, I'm the one known to kind of ruffle the feathers at home in this sense, but it was an important realization for me to have that there was not an AAPI collective or group that I could go to to just share my feelings with. And I ended up getting invited to a call with like 25 AAPI women from across the country. And so I tagged a few of my Omaha friends and that weekend we just hopped on Google, had never met 90% of them and just voiced how we were feeling and that was so powerful to me and as I was talking to Alicia Shelton and my other friend Eric who are also in this group with me I was like you guys like what do what do we do to move progress forward and the conversation that we were having is that so many progressive folks are frustrated with the Democratic Party and a lot of them want to leave the Democratic Party and start their own. The problem with that is that then you walk away from the institution that is money and that is cash and that is backing and connections. And so so then it's like, well, then how do we influence the Democratic Party to be more progressive? And my Alicia Shelton was like, you got to get a seat at the table. I'm like, okay, how do you get a seat at the table? <laughs> like, I am so new to the this work inside the institution. I work in the community. And so I don't know what the, Dem- like, Nebraska Democratic Party does from the Douglas County Party. And um, so learning more about that, and they connected me with uh, Caleb Rohrer. I, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. And he's an Asian American uh, who's already a part of the party and has an executive seat but has been trying to start an AAPI caucus and hasn't been able to um, find the people to take take the torch. And because he already has a seat, he can't be the chair. And so my capstone is I'm starting an AAPI caucus with the Nebraska State Democratic Party. Um, we're going to have our first meeting next week to just kind of talk about bylaws and how a caucus works and what power we have and for me, primarily, it's just a space for progressive AAPI community members to come together to talk about this COVID and the racism that we've experienced through COVID, throughout our lives, and how do we respond as a cohort of folks in the Omaha and Nebraska community across the state of 
harnessing power and telling our own stories again through our lenses and really just bringing hope back together for us because it's felt, you know, like I'm my Lola wants me to take her to the Asian market and I'm terrified to take her to the Asian market and or just with my my dad going out, I get worried because they look more Asian than I do or my brother and it's something to me that I need. And it's almost like how what, why Nightcast started. Like I needed an educational space, um, but a creative educational space. And with this AAPI caucus, I need a space for my own healing and community and to just meet people who have similar experiences to me. And how do we make informed decisions by listening to each other and bringing those decisions to the Nebraska State Democratic Party? Well, I hate to throw anything else onto your plate because you've got like 15 great sounding things. <laughs> but is Nightcaps, is it, is there a way people could, like, is there a Patreon or something where they can help you bring it back the way that you'd want to and not, uh, not go Man, broke? Go donate to Outer Spaces, which is kind of my fiscal agent or sponsor. And Philip has been doing amazing work at providing artists spaces to create and perform and present to the community. So you can head to their website and donate there. You can, I, I don't know if you can make a note, but where you can just, you know, shoot me a DM or email and I'll be like, I'll tell Philip, hey, this is for Nightcaps. And really pushing Outer Space's agenda forward is helping to push the Nightcaps agenda forward as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really exciting and I've really had a good time. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here and I know. I'm just like, ah, what am I going to talk about? There's so many things. Which ones? <laughs> well, feel free. If you ever want to come back on and talk about other things, I know we had a lot of big topics. Uh, yeah. you're, well, you're always welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Her artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of the conversations on this show wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. Also, remember, we're trying out a new feature here, a kind of letter to the editor where you can call in about what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>